All right, today we're going to talk about discipling new believers, and um, I am going to open in prayer, and um, you may say as you're listening to this, oh, I'm, I feel like I'm a new believer, but I would encourage you to take notes and um, to save it for the time that you're older and you can older in the Lord and you can disciple young believers. And also, um, if you are an older believer and you would like to make an impact on younger believers lives, I really encourage you to take the things I'm going to share to heart. I'm going to share some things with you that you're going to say, Oh, really? And yes. And I'll tell you why I say them. Okay, so now you're wondering what I'm talking about. Okay, um, all right, I'm going to open in prayer. Father, we love you with all of our hearts, and we thank you for the cool breeze of your Holy Spirit, which we call forth now in Jesus' name. And uh, we thank you that you are so good at loving people, and you're so good at teaching people. And we want to be like you, and we want to bring people not only into the kingdom, but into a close relationship with you. So right now as we talk, I pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus and allow us to learn so that we can be equipped to help new believers become strong in the Lord. Okay, amen. Um, raise your hand if you have led someone to the Lord. And as far as leading someone to Christ, how did you did you meet with them after they became a Christian and help them to kind of get established in the Lord? And um, how many of you, you, you may not have led someone to the Lord, but you ended up helping them to get, like you helped a baby Christian grow in the Lord. Okay. How many of you at any point in that experience felt frustrated? Okay, good. So we're off to a good start because we can always, when something happens and it doesn't go quite as planned, that is always an opportunity to learn more. Because we can always look back and, you know, kind of troubleshoot and move forward. So it's always a good thing, right? Not like we want things to go bad. It's just we can look at the bright side <laughs> when they do. <laughs> so, um, well, God calls us in Matthew 28. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you, to me. He doesn't say us, but to him, to me. Therefore, go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And lo, I will be with you always, even to the ends of the earth. So that is called what, ladies? What is that called? What? The Great Commission. And if you spend any time with me, you will learn that first. It will become part of your life because you will hear me say it so many times that eventually you'll memorize it without effort and that will become, because that really is, um, I would say, one of the passions of my life to fulfill 
that verse and um, to see the earth filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. Amen. So it's an exciting call. Now, notice the Great Commission starts with God and it ends with God. It starts with his authority. And so if you're wondering today, can I do that? Am I allowed? Will the pastor let me? Yes, you're allowed. God has the authority and he calls his disciples to go and make disciples. Okay, so you have been commissioned. So turn to the girl next to you and say, you have been commissioned. So have you ever seen a commissioning ceremony where they commission an officer or they commission um, a young soldier or sailor? And that's so exciting. And, um, and so we're commissioned by the Lord to go and make disciples. And so our first thought is, oh, wow, how am I going to do this? And he says, lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. So how are you going to do it with the strength of God? Because in Philippians 3, it tells us that my God will supply all our, my needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And that's just not my need to have chocolate ice cream or my need to be able to get sleep or my need to have friends or have money. It's my need to be proactive in the kingdom of God where I am making a difference. How many of you ever feel inadequate to make disciples? Now, I am going to tell you something important. That is a perfect place to be because the Bible says that God resists the proud and he gives grace to who? The humble. He gives grace to the humble. And you know, that is so important to keep in mind. So much of the Christian life, it's not about striving to be everything God called you to be. So much of the Christian life is about surrendering and letting God live his life through us. But we're proactive. We take that step and we trust God to fill us and to use us. Now, this is from 2 Corinthians 13, and I'm going to start out with something that's going to sound kind of harsh, and I want to get it out of the way so we can get to the fun, lighter stuff. In, in 2 Corinthians 13, it says this, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you, unless, of course, you fail the test? And I trust you will have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you do not do anything wrong. Not that people will see that we have stood the test, but that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And our prayer is for your perfection. This is why I write these things when I'm absent. That when I come to you, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Now, if you, if you turn to 1 Corinthians 13, I want you to underline that. You have authority to build people up, but you do not have authority from God to tear people down. 
2 Corinthians 13, yes. And that would be verse 10. So you do have authority to build people up. You do not have authority to tear people down. Okay? If anyone's going to be torn down around you, let it be the devil. And let it be all his people. Never, uh, never have it be said of you that you tore someone down. How many of you have felt torn down by other people? It did not help you. <laughs> it did not help you, did it? It did not make you feel like you're an overcomer. It, it, it probably did drive you to Jesus, hopefully, <laughs> for his mercy and grace to forgive. But um, we want to be, but it, but it starts, that passage I read starts with examine yourself to see if you're truly in the faith. Now, Juliana isn't here, but she was in this situation where there was a girl and she kept saying, she was discipling her and she kept saying, I don't really think I'm a Christian. It just doesn't feel like I'm a Christian. It just doesn't feel like I'm a Christian. And so Juliana thought the loving thing to do was to say, oh, no, 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 you're a Christian. Oh, you're a Christian. And, and to really encourage her that she was a Christian. Well, the truth was it turned out this girl wasn't a Christian. So the very first thing when you're discipling a new believer is walking into a garage doesn't make you a car and walking up to the altar doesn't make you a Christian. We cannot see people's hearts. The best person to know someone's heart besides Jesus is themselves. So if they're having doubts about their salvation, guys, they may not be saved, okay? Don't give someone a false sense of security that they're saved when they may not be saved. And what happens, and, and I'm just going to give you like a quick thing. What happens when you're saved? Do you know that in the early, in, in well, of course, in the early church, but let's just go back a few hundred years to New England. To join a church, you had to have a salvation experience, you had to have a testimony. This is what I I was like before Christ. This is how I met Jesus. This is how he changed my life. You could not become a member of a church without a testimony, a salvation experience. Now, they did something called, um, uh, what was it called? The something compromise. I taught my kids about it. Um, the what? The halfway compromise. Covenant, the halfway covenant. And this is what it was. It's it was this. We have children now to vote in Boston, to vote in Salem, to vote in Plymouth, you had to be a member of the church. So if you did not have a salvation experience, so you could become a member of the church, and everybody went to church, but not everyone was a member, you could not vote. So these parents were saying, Hey, my children, they don't have a salvation experience, but they're good people. They come to church every week. Let's have this halfway covenant where they can be halfway members of the church if they sign a statement of faith. Okay, now I want you to think about that. So instead of having an experience with Jesus Christ where he changes your life, if you believe the following things, I believe God created the world, check. I believe that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Check. I, and it was, and it became academic. 
And so instead of being able to say, I've had this experience with Jesus Christ, the halfway covenant allowed these people to attend church regularly, give their tithe and sign this statement of faith. And then they were Christians, kind of, but they could vote. And at that point, the church in New England began to die. That was the point where now there was, there was still to come, you know, the, the great awakening. But at that point, the church began to lose its edge because they pretended that people were okay when they were outside of Christ and they were going to hell. So the reason I say all that is because when someone gets saved, they don't have to have sound doctrine. You don't have to have sound doctrine to be saved. You have to call on the name of Jesus and surrender your life to him. And when someone has been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, they will know. They will know. They won't be saying, oh, you know, I believe this is true now. I didn't used to believe this is true. They will know something inside me is different. I want to do the right thing now. I feel so guilty about the things I've done and said to my mom. I remember when Brooklyn got saved. Brooklyn wept for weeks. She was a mess because God was dealing with her heart. And when she got saved, everybody knew that she was saved because she was a new person. Now, Brooklyn was a good girl. I couldn't figure out what she was repenting about because I never saw her sin. But Brooklyn was, God was moving in Brooklyn's heart and Brooklyn was transformed by the Holy Ghost and she cried out to Jesus. And I remember my kids coming home from life group and telling me the news. Brooklyn's life was transformed. When Sarah Jeffords got saved, she walked away from her sin. Now, I'm not saying you have to clean up your life before you can be saved. I'm not saying that. But she didn't clean up her life. She yelled out to God, save me, Jesus, save me. And the very next day, the Holy Spirit began to say, clean this up, clean this up, clean this up, clean this up. And there was a change inside of her. She had a hunger for the word. And, and so there are little things that happen to people it's not the same for everybody, but I'm just going to give you some general things that happen when someone has a salvation experience. They feel a lot of sorrow over their sin. They're not able to sin. They might sin. They might go sleep with their boyfriend. They might go get drunk, but they will feel so ashamed of their behavior and so sad and so sorry. They'll have a hunger for the word. When someone is born again, they will have a hunger for the word a, a lot of the times. You won't have to say, oh, here, you need to read this. They'll be saying, oh, please give me a Bible so I can read it. There's going to be a hunger there for the word. There is going to be a desire to know more about God. Can you tell me about God? I want to be close to him. There's going to be that that heart to do that. Now, I'm not saying if someone doesn't have a quiet time every day, they're not saved. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is when the Holy Spirit changes someone, there is a change. The old is gone, the new has come. 
They're a new creature in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17. The old is gone, the new has come. There has to, and there will be a sense in someone. And if your children come to you and say, I don't know if I'm truly saved, don't say, oh, of course you are. Say, well, let's sit down. Have you surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ? Why do you feel, and when someone says that to you, say, why do you feel that you're not saved? Why do you feel like you don't know the Lord? Now, sometimes someone is dealing with the spirit of condemnation and they truly are saved. But don't just assume that's what it is. Because God gave this parable, Jesus, and he said, you know, there's this man and he is a traveling and, and I mean, he's asleep and his whole family's asleep. And then this person, his neighbor comes over and he says, hey, wake up, wake up. There's a visitor. I need to feed him. Can I borrow some bread? Hey, hey, wake up, wake up, wake up. And finally the guy gets up and gives him the bread. And then yada, yada, da, 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 da. Jesus shares some more stuff. And then at the very end, he said, and God will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. And it says to me, is God sometimes doesn't just, oh, hey, Jesus, I want to surrender my life to you. Sometimes God makes people cry out to him. Remember the Gentile woman who had to just keep begging Jesus to get his attention? And then other people don't even ask. Paul's just driving along and whap, God knocks him off his horse. So God doesn't have a standard way that he deals with people. So the question isn't, is your salvation experience like this? Is it like mine? But is there an experience that someone has had with Jesus Christ? Is there a change? Is there something? And change doesn't mean there's suddenly no theology. They suddenly are living the perfect life. There's a hunger for the Lord in some way. Okay? Now, on the other hand, if someone tells you they're a believer in Jesus, don't say, oh, I don't think you are because I don't see this and I don't see that. If someone tells you they're a believer and they've just accepted Christ, then treat them as if they have just accepted Christ. People who are young Christians need to hear the gospel over and over and over and over again for at least probably two years. That's why sometimes these old Baptist churches, you know, that share the gospel at the end of every service and play just as I am without one plea, you know, nine verses of it at the end of every service. But that's good because you're hearing the gospel. You can never hear the gospel too much. And it is a reminder you are saved by the blood of Jesus. This is all about Jesus. This is not something that you did. You can't muster up some kind of craving for God. You can't muster up some kind of, you know, Holy Spirit change in your life. God is the one who invades our life if we surrender to him. And the whole Christian life is surrendering to God, allowing him to pour out his presence, surrendering to God, allowing him to pour out his presence. And so in the very beginning, we need to be reminded over and over and over of grace, 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 because God gives the grace to overcome sin. We cannot clench our 
fists and grit our teeth and overcome sin. It will not happen. We cannot clench our fists and grit our teeth and say, I'm going to love people now. All of that comes from surrendering to Jesus and just letting his grace pour through. Yes. Good. And what, what Katie Best said is that that new belief, that great men of God who impacted the world in a powerful way constantly went back to the gospel. And every day they went back to the gospel and they responded to the gospel by repenting and believing. And, you know, that really does. Jesus went around preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. And change directions and believe. Change direction and believe. And, and, and that is true. We just go back to the gospel because if we don't go back to the gospel, we either get puffed up with pride or we get discouraged with condemnation. And neither one of them are correct. And so when you, when you mentor a new believer, you want to constantly talk about the gospel. And um, most people, when they give their hearts to Christ, they really don't understand the gospel. They just know, I want to be right with God. It's just kind of driving them. And so it's really good over the next early weeks and months to just keep going through the gospel and explain that God is holy. Explain that mankind is sinful. Explain the cross and how the cross is the bridge between our inadequacy and God's holiness. And explain the response to the gospel. To repent and to believe. And the Bible says, without faith it is impossible to please God because those who believe him must acknowledge that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So if you look through the Old Old Testament, it's so fun because you look at these guys and you think, man, they are losers. Like they just keep blowing it and blowing it. Abraham just told his wife to say she's his sister. And what's he doing? Letting her go into Pharaoh's harem. Like what is he doing? You know, but what? was pleasing to God about them. They believed. They had faith. They looked to God. So, um, anyway, the first thing with the new believer is to keep going through the gospel, reminding them of the gospel. And then the next thing is assurance of salvation. So, um, and there's a, um, I'm going to read you a verse from 1 John. 1 John 5. And 1 John 5 says this, And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And that was one of the first verses I memorized. I don't remember it word for word anymore. But just said, if I have the Son, I have eternal life. If I don't have the Son, I don't have eternal life. 1 John 5 is written so that people can know if they're truly born again. John, the gospel of John, is written to share the gospel. And then 1 John is written to young believers 
so they can know if they have eternal life. So 1 John is a great book to go through with the new believer, a Bible study, because it, it, it there's all these things. If you are a Christian, if you know God, you will. If you love God, you will. You know, it, and so... Um, it's, it's a great book to go through with the young believer for them to be convinced. Oh, wow. One of the first things that will start to happen in a new believer's life is they will be excited. They'll have joy and, you know, God will answer all of their prayers. And so you have to guard your heart because you're like, well, I've been praying for seven years and 17 days for this thing in my life. And you just prayed for a thousand dollars to come in an envelope in the mail. And it came yesterday okay, God, guard my heart. I'll rejoice, you know, but, um, God will answer their prayers quickly, often, not always, but often. Um, and they'll have a love for people. They'll just, oh, you're a believer. Oh, I love you so much. Aren't they wonderful? And, and, you know, and that is, that is just a new believer and you're like, and they're so excited. And so don't be the joy stealer. You know, I remember being a new Christian and being so excited and, People come up and they're like, well, that's not going to last. And I'm like, oh, it is. <laughs> I'm going to be excited about Jesus when I'm 60. But, um, you know, it is a delight. It's like a honeymoon, getting to know the Lord. And so encourage that and tell them, oh, it's such a joy to be around you. I love your joy for the Lord. Don't, you know, let someone else be the wet blanket. Never be the wet blanket. Never be the one who you know, sows doubt or says, oh, it's not going to be like this forever. It can be. I mean, I know Christians who their whole Christian life were excited and on fire for Jesus. Okay, so then, so what are the things we need to teach a new believer? Um, One of the things that new believers will struggle with is, you know, at least I know I did, the first 782 times I sinned, I asked Jesus into my heart again because I thought, oh, I must not be saved. I just sinned. And so I would pray the prayer again. And I just kept doing it, you know, and I knew that wasn't right, but I was just, just to make sure. And so the first thing, one of the first things you want to do after the gospel and assurance of salvation is sin. How do you deal with sin? And the Bible tells us in First John, First John, such a great book. And it says this, um, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Um, and so the first thing, First John um, 8 and 9 chapter one. Um, and so we confess our sins to Jesus. And now this is not confessing God. I robbed a bank. (laughs) You know, that would be like if you're arrested and you're confessing to the police, but confessing to God is apologizing, acknowledging what you did and apologizing for what you did. And if you are genuinely repentant, and this is just for all of us to remember, and you can teach new believers this and old believers and people older than you in the Lord, if someone is genuinely repentant, they will have a desire to make things right. That's called the principle of restitution. Many times when we sin, we can't. We can't fix something. 
But if someone steals money from you, they will have a desire to not just give you back all the money that they stole from you, but something even more to let, you know, like Matthew said, you know, Lord, I've paid back everyone I've stolen from three times, you know, and so there, there's a sense of wanting to, now I'm not saying that you force that on someone else. If someone stole from me, I would only make them pay back what they sold, but it's a clue to see if someone is genuinely repentant, there'll be this desire to make things right. Someone says something negative about you and they repent to you. If they add this to you, I went back to everyone I talked to and I told them that what I said was out of line. It wasn't true. And I never should have said it. That's a repentant heart. I'm not saying, I'm just telling you. So you want to cultivate true repentance and people will, young believers will, before they get all corrupted by the worldliness in the church, there's a lot of fresh newness in a young believer because we use a lot of worldly principles in the church. You know, we tell people, oh, it's okay. Don't worry about that. That's one of the worst things. When someone apologizes to you, you should say, I forgive you. I release you. I forgive you. Not it's okay. No, it's not okay when people sin. It's not okay. So don't lie to people. Don't be honest. I forgive you. Don't say you're a crummy worm. I hate your guts. You know, that's not loving either. (laughs) (laughs) So if a new believer says, I want to make this right, you say to them, that is from God. Because God puts in us that desire when we're repentant to make things right. That's from him. And so, you know, but the truth is in this situation, there's nothing that you can do. So we're going to, but one thing that you can do is you can pray that God will bless this person. God will restore. God will heal their heart, whatever. You know what I'm saying? So you can lead people in that kind of prayer. Um, number, uh, the next thing. So we're talking about teaching. How do, how do you deal with sin? Cause that, for me, that was a really hard one. That was really hard. Um, and now the basics. I like to think um, they're like these five legs of a stool. And to me, it just always in the Christian life, it comes back to these five basics over and over and over. So it's like, okay, well, you know, we're leaders now. So what are we going to talk about? The five basic foundations of the Christian faith. Um, of course, at a deeper level. So they would be, does anyone know the five foundational basics of the Christian life? Of course, because I'm a worship leader, right? (laughs) One is worship, prayer, Bible, tithing we're going to get to. Tithing is actually part of worship, and we're going to talk about that. Um, And then there's two more that aren't personal, as much as fellowship and witnessing or evangelism. So um, you could put ministry, you could just say ministry there, um, but disciple making there. But so witnessing is um, teach young believers to witness right away. Teach them how to share the gospel because they have tons of non-Christian friends and all their non-Christian friends just saw their life completely turn upside down and they can win all of their old friends to the Lord. I mean, I worked for a whole year to see Susie get saved 
And I, I was witnessing to other people too, but then Susie got saved. And within a couple of weeks, she had led like three people to the Lord because they had seen such a dramatic change in her life. Yes. I'm going to go through each one, but I'll tell you the five. The five are worship, prayer, the Bible, fellowship, and witnessing. And witnessing slash making disciples. Teach people young. Jesus, before Peter even gave his heart to Christ, said, Peter, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. Peter, follow me and I will make you a disciple maker. That's what he was saying. So when someone gets saved, you are not saved to have a party and, you know, just have this little private party with Jesus. You are saved to impact the people around you. Teach people that very young. Teach your children that before they're saved. You know, we... There's everything I'm sharing about this applies to your children. You, Paul knew so much about the word before he even became born again. And then once he was born again, the Lord used all of that knowledge that he had to be able to impact. So, um, okay, so I'm going to start with worship. I think worship is truly important because it's the first and great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And it also is the first of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And number two, thou shalt not bear, thou shalt not make any graven image or bow down to them. And number three, the name of the Lord is holy. You shouldn't misuse it. You shouldn't take it in vain. And number four, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And so we have got the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments are all about worshiping God as the first preeminent place in your life. That means that you tell a new believer, you own nothing now. Everything you own belongs to God. You have no more rights. You surrendered all your rights to Jesus. He is the one you worship and live for. You are not your own, the Bible says. You were bought with a price. And, and the first thing to teach a new believer is that Jesus Christ and his glory is more important than anything else, than their comfort, than their prayers being answered, anything else, Jesus and his glory. Your money belongs to God. He asks for 10%. I teach young believers to tithe right away because... Jesus talked more about money than any other subject. Why? Because God needs money. I mean, he owns it all. Because money is a barometer of our hearts. Money reveals. I have not met anyone that struggles to tithe and is generous and, and struggles to be generous and struggles to tithe who has an easy walk with the Lord. Because it's a barometer. It's a barometer of what, it's a barometer. It reveals our heart. It's Jesus first. If it's very hard for us to give up 10% of the money that he gave us, it's going to be very hard when he says, okay, I want you to sell everything you have and go to Colombia and be a missionary to the, you know, cocaine growers on this mountain. <laughs> I'm not saying God will say that, but you want to instill in new believers that God loves them and has a personal relationship with them and he is their God. 
and and all the idols have to go. That means anything, everything that we love as much as God, we can't love as much as God anymore. Our love for God has to be surpassing all of that. So when we talk about worship, why do I always pray for the tithes and offerings? For a long time, I thought, you know, I don't want to talk about money. You know, I don't, Mike and I, Mike and I, when I say I, I mean Mike and I, like we don't want to talk about money in the service. And, you know, we just, we would leave a box in the, in the back and people would put their tithes in and everyone still tithe. I mean, we have a very strong tithing church, but one day I was worshiping and I just felt like, wow, the Lord wants us to give us our tithes and offerings as part of worship, not have it be something just, but as a congregation that we're saying, God, here are our tithes and offerings. We offer them to you. So whether we put them in a box in the back or whether we pass the offering plate, we need to give them to him and say, this is part of our worship. We're giving you this because we love you. And, um, and, and we sing him these songs because we love him, you know, and, and also teaching, you know, part of worship is teaching people to respect God and to honor him. You know, that if someone's praying, everyone stops what they're doing. We're talking to God. He's king of the universe. So we're all stopping what we're doing and we're going to pray. If we're opening in prayer or praying for the food and train your children when they're young, I would say to my kids, do not be disrespectful to the Lord. So my little two-year-olds would stand up during worship (laughs) and they would be wiggly as can be. But I would say, you need to stand up. We're honoring God. And you cannot be disrespectful. I would rather my children be disrespectful to me than disrespectful to the Lord in any way. And so now I don't want them to be disrespectful to me either. <laughs> you know? So, okay, so that, do you guys have a sense for that? So worshiping God, it means God is preeminent above everything. There is nothing before God. Number two, I'm going to talk about um, the Bible second instead of prayer. Um If you say to a new believer, just stand on the promises, they have no idea what you're talking about. So the first thing that a new believer needs is to get familiar with the Bible, especially the New Testament. And so usually what I say to a new believer is start with the book of John, and then I encourage you in whatever order you want to read through the whole New Testament. When you're finished with that, read through the whole Old Testament and then keep reading through the New Testament again and again and again. And, you know, just as a Christian, I would encourage people. And like I said, this is not a rule. You don't have to do it. I would encourage you should be getting through the New Testament at least once a year. You should be getting through the Old Testament at least once every three years because God didn't say, oh, here's the book of John, and this is enough for you. We have the whole Bible. Jesus quoted from some real obscure books. Paul quoted from some real obscure books. So we need to know the word. And sometimes it might mean, you know, hey, I'm going to sit down and read 20 chapters today. And then the next week, you're just like in two chapters total because you're just looking at chunks of verses. I'm not giving you a formula for how you need to read the Bible. I'm just saying you need to get through the Bible often so that you're knowledgeable. And and new believers want to come to a place where they know what where to go 
if, if they if they want wisdom on finances, where do they go? Not because they you tell them, oh, if you need wisdom on finances, you go to First Timothy six, go to the book of Proverbs. You know, you tell them, and, and then Jesus talks a lot about money. No, that they know, oh, yeah, when I need to know about finances, because First Timothy 6, I've read that a couple times now, and I remember it talks about being content, and it says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And, you know, and what about when I need to know about the riches I have in Christ? Okay, well, the beginning of Ephesians and the beginning of Colossians, that really hits on our inheritance in Christ, and I know where that is. And you want new believers to come to a place where on their own, they know where stuff is because they're reading the Bible so much that they know where to go for help. They know where to look. Give them highlighters, give them pens, and tell them, mark up your Bible. When I was a new believer, I highlighted every promise in pink, and if I was depressed, I opened my Bible and read every pink scripture I could find because I knew that would give me hope and it would give me life. And, you know, um, as we get older, we know more where things are, but, you know, underline stuff, circle it, put stars by it, whatever you need to do so that you know where to go. The Bible is everything we need for life and godliness his precious promises are in the bible you have to teach people to know the word you have to teach people to know the word now i'm not against devotional books but you have to think in terms of people need to read the bible on their own devotional books are fine as an appetizer they're not fine as a meal do you guys understand that? Because, yes. Right, I am. And I'm just, so, and, and there's all kinds of ways to read the Bible. The, the, a new believer often in the culture we live in has not read the Bible. And so they're starting from scratch. The book of John is a great place to, to start. You know, um, then they could read Luke and then Acts. Those are great back-to-back and then go into Romans or, you know, Luke covers, John covers the, to me, John covers Jesus' teaching in a really great way. And then Luke covers all the action in a really great way, along with the miracles and this and, you know, and then you go into Acts and you see, wow, I mean, God is moving so then you've got the history of the, you've got the life of Jesus, you've got the history of the church. And that is a great foundation for a new believer. And teach, teach new believers to look for Jesus. You know, I, I mean, so many times people tell me, I just don't feel close to Jesus. It's because they're, they're looking at the Bible academically or kind of in a superstitious way, okay, here are the promises of God. If I do this, this, and this, God's going to do this. But you've got to look in the Bible for Jesus, and you've got to get to know him, and you've got to love him, because he's in every page, but especially the Gospels. And, you know, I, I, I pray, Jesus, I want to see you in this story here. I want to see you. I want to feel like I'm there. I want to feel like I'm back in Jerusalem and I'm on my way to the Passover and there you are and I'm watching you. 
and and we want it we want to instill that kind of hunger to know God to to know him and experience him I mean and the theology comes later I'm not against theology or anything like that but the first thing people need that you you want to come to a place as a new believer you have a sense you know what I think this is how Jesus would respond to this situation because when this happened this is how he responded and when this person said this this is how Jesus responded so so do you, do you follow what I'm saying so the bible shows us what god wants how to pray and a, a lot of times for me i find my prayers are vastly different if i pray first than if i pray second after i read the bible because the Bible kind of purifies all my prayers. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and if you pray before and after, you can really say, see like a vast difference, you know? So, um, okay. So get people into the word. They need to become familiar with the word. You know, with Elijah, with Noah, with Moses, the stories. Um, that's why your children read your children Bible stories. They should know every Bible story. Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. You know every Bible story because then when they grow up and they're reading the Bible, they're going to go, "Oh yeah, I know this story. Oh yeah, I know this story. Oh yeah, I know this story." So um, it gives them some things to hold on to. The next thing is prayer, and um, prayer. Um, I just think you need to have a balance. God is our friend, but he is not our buddy. God is close. He's not far away, but he is not a human. And and we need to be reverent in how we pray, and we need to be intimate in how we pray. But I, I just, I think that's important to keep in mind, you know, um, and pray about everything. Um, tell God how wonderful he is, thank him for things, pray for other people, pray for your walk with the Lord, pray for things you want to see God do, um, confess your sin, like there's so much to prayer, and you, you probably won't be able to cover everything in every day, but I would say this, enter his gates with thanksgiving, whether you're worshiping or prayer, start with thanksgiving, it will give you the right perspective, a lot of times we fall into negativity because, hey, we live in a fallen world, we're surrounded by fallen people. We're surrounded by people who know Jesus, but live in jars of the Jesus is in a jar of clay. And so we, it's so easy to be negative. So start out with prayer by being positive and thanking the Lord for everything you can think of. If you have to say, Lord, thank you for my nostrils that can smell and thank you for my ears that can hear, that is a good place to start, you know, because I know we go through rough times. But God is always good and he's always faithful. So, um, okay. And then the next thing is fellowship. Fellowship is not watching a football game together, although it can be. Especially if it's the dolphins who are playing. <laughs> and um, so, but we, fellowship, see, this is what God did. He wants us to be built together in a building. And we talked about this when we looked at, at First Peter 2 a few weeks ago. And we're all like living stones, and we're being smushed together. 
I mean smushed. And sometimes it is so uncomfortable. And you know, I'm being smushed together with this person and they are really ticking me off. Or I'm being smushed together with this person and all they do is complain. And I'm being smushed together with this person and I was so godly before I became close to them. <laughs> now I'm really struggling. <laughs> But we're being smushed together with people for a purpose. It's not just so that we can have these fun friendships and go hang out. That's not, I mean, that's fine. And that's part of the process. But it isn't the purpose. The purpose is that we contain the glory of God. That's the purpose. If you ever said, what's the purpose of my marriage? So God, my husband, can meet all my needs? No, and he never will. Ha, surprise. But the purpose of marriage is so Jesus' glory is visible through your marriage and in your marriage so that you can lay down your life as a slave for your husband so that he can see Christ. No one likes that, right? No one likes that, but... But it is the truth. Remember, all our rights are gone. And, and so, and you know, and just realize as I say these things, I'm needing to hear them myself, right? We all need to hear things, the same thing over and over. So God puts us in these relationships, not so that we feel all fuzzy and good inside, although we will, often we will. God puts us in relationships so we can build each other up, never tearing each other down, building each other up, that we can be a building to contain God's glory. So that people can look and say, wow, look at how Brooklyn and Katie Beth love each other. They have to be. They have to be different. There has to be something different about them. And Jesus is saying, yeah, they're my disciples. See, that's what God is doing. That's what God is doing. And you will find, I find this as a pastor's wife. Oh, sorry. I find this as a pastor's wife. That a lot of people look for a church where they can find buddies to hang out with. But buddies to hang out with, I mean, really, is that... Is that where you want to live? Because they're not, they are not going to help you become what God called you to be, a buddy. And you're not going to help them become what God called you to be. If you strive for relationships that honor Christ and are centered on Christ, the buddy factor will be met. I promise. You'll have to maybe make some effort sometimes. Some of us are in seasons where, like Jane, Jane works so hard taking care of her dad. It's like a full-time job, and it isn't easy. And Jane is on call a lot, you know? And some of you with kids of all different ages, sometimes you feel like you never leave your house or medical things. And, and so not all of us are in different seasons, and some of us have more fellowship time than others. And if you have time to go grab coffee and go here and go there, do it. That's awesome. But let your friendship be focused on building one another up in Christ because that's what fellowship is. Fellowship is when Jesus is in the middle and he's the king. And, and you can tell that because you're going to 
you're going to find yourself saying, you know what? I shouldn't have said that to you because I don't feel it was helpful for you. And I'm really sorry. You're going to find yourself because all of us blow it, right? You're going to find yourself hardly even noticing when other people do you wrong because you're so filled with God's love. And then all of a sudden you're like, wow, they really are mean. I never noticed. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Well, that might happen. But that is one of the things that when we're filled with his love, we will hardly even notice when other people do us wrong because God is so filling us and we have compassion for people when they hurt us. So fellowship, though, is in, in a deeper way. If all of us, and, and I'm going to try to explain it like this first so that you understand it. If we were going to build a, a giant puzzle and we would be able to put the puzzle together and exchange it for a check for a million dollars that we could divide up among us. How many of you would want to put the puzzle together? I would. I mean, because we could use some money right now. So all of us, God came in the room and he gave everyone a puzzle piece. And then we put the puzzle together. But Mickey Lana said, I'm not using my puzzle piece. And she, she stuck it in her pocket. And Mary said, if Mickey Lana's not using her puzzle piece, I'm not using mine. <laughs> and Jane said, Mary, please use your puzzle piece. And, and Mary said, only if Brooklyn isn't there or only if Katie Beth isn't there. And then Hosanna said, well, I'm not using mine. And she put hers in. And so then the rest of us say, okay, Mary, you be a brat. But we're building this puzzle. Brooklyn, Katie Beth, come on. And we build the puzzle together. But what's wrong? There's two missing pieces. Mickey Lana. <laughs> so that is exactly what spiritual gifts and strengths are in the body of Christ. It isn't like what you do. It's something about who you are and the way that you minister to people. And sometimes it comes out in a prophetic word. And But it's this coming together and working together toward what God has called us to do. And if anyone holds back, there's missing pieces. It doesn't work. And so we can't turn our puzzle in for a million dollars. And we and we're waiting. And we're waiting and we're wondering what is wrong? What is wrong? Or maybe we find out, oh my goodness, it's me. I have two pieces and I only used one. So I know that's a weird illustration, but I want you to be able to understand that God doesn't, he just doesn't give everyone everything. We're incomplete. I remember as a sophomore in college reading the book of Ephesians and I finished it in my quiet time and the Lord said, go back and read it again. I finished it and the Lord said, go back and read it again. I read the book of Ephesians in my quiet time so many times, I don't even remember how many. 
But when I was done, the Lord said to me, what did you learn? And I said, I can't grow strong in you apart from the body of Christ. And the Lord said, yes. And that etched in my mind. That's all God wanted to show me. I cannot grow strong in him apart from the body of Christ. It's God did not set up his kingdom for that to be possible. He did not. And so if you are struggling, you will find that as you knit together with other people, you will be overcoming. If God called you to a local church, then look around. I should have you all get up and peek in the other two rooms. <laughs> that is your call to those people. You're called to minister to them and for them to minister to you. God calls his body an army. And he talks in the Old Testament about marching in rank. And we need to know our position and our place so that we can march together, kick in the gates of hell, and rescue captives, and see them built up to maturity and teach them everything God has commanded us. So teach new believers to make fellowship a priority. A new believer will very seldom miss church ever. In fact, they will usually come to church, come to Wednesday night, visit the church down the street at, you know, two o'clock on Sunday afternoon, visit another church at seven o'clock at night, <laughs> find another, I mean, they are hungry to be with other believers, you know, but, but that's something that should be in our heart. Not some kind of rule, but it should be in our heart. Like, how many of you have ever missed a few Sundays of church and you think, I've got to be at church? Part of it is because the pastor has a word for us. He has a word for the people that are in his flock. And so that's why I always tell you, if you're on vacation, go on online, listen to the sermons, talk to their people, say, what did God speak to you? What was God saying? Find out what's going on so that you're equipped, you're built up. But just as important are those conversations, are those hugs, are those prayers, are those people knowing where, where you are and what's going on. Because we, we might have it all together on Tuesday, but by Thursday we don't, right? Or maybe on Tuesday we're falling apart, but by Thursday we're fine. And that is the body of Christ. So last thing, I, I got to stop so we can pray. But the last thing is uh, witnessing. Teach new believers to share the gospel. Bring them to evangelism at 10 o'clock on Saturday. 10.30, isn't it? 10.30. And teach them to reach out and to um, tell people, to invite people to church, to you know, talk about Jesus, to be bold. And they will. I mean, new believers. I remember when Aisha was a new believer, and she's not here so I can tell this story. So she was in her, her class at SSC, <laughs> and it was, oh, it was before a test, and she got down on her knees in the middle of the aisle <laughs> and prayed for her test out loud. <laughs> It was so cute. And how many of us would do that? 
How many of us would do it for money? I wouldn't even do it for money. <laughs> but it was so sweet, and it was so, like, you know, just, you know, we would all think, well, what are people thinking? But we should really be always thinking, what is God thinking, you know? And sometimes I think he's, he's really delighted when we're willing to be fools for Christ. So that always tickled me. She said, would you have done that? And I said, oh, no, I'm too old. Like Laura said, I don't know if I would get up. <laughs> if I kneeled down, it would be like, oh, I'm there. <laughs> so, but, um, so the gospel, every time we share the gospel, it's a reminder of what God has done to us. And that's why it's such a blessing. And some people are going to be more effective. I'm one of those people I share and share and share. I've led really very few people to the Lord. You know, I've shared a lot with people, but it seems like I'm more of the person who, you know, okay, you're saved. Now let me help you grow up. I seem to be more gifted in that and raising up leaders. But I have had the joy of leading people to Christ and it is a joy. And all of us should be pleading with the Lord to use us to save souls. And, um, you know, and, and things like this, you can say to a new believer. So I noticed that you have um, <clears throat> three friends that hang, hang out a lot outside of 7-Eleven with drinking beer. And um, have you ever thought of talking to them about Jesus? Maybe we could go talk to them about Jesus together. Things like that. So early in the day before they've had too many beers. <laughs> so anyway, um, that is how to mentor a new believer. And um, I am really excited for us to, you know, put this into practice. Next week, we're going to talk about the arrival kit. And I'm going to have, I want you to think about this now. I'm going to have everyone tell me if they've been through the arrival kit if they want to go through the arrival kit and if they want to take someone else through the arrival kit.